Let's go. You are listening to Dollars and Sensibility, the podcast that explores the numbers, concepts, and behaviors that shape your financial life. Hosts, business partners, and friends Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are financial advisors in Hollywood, California, that for a combined 35 years have helped thousands of individuals and businesses better their financial futures. Here, they want to open these discussions to you, the listener, share the many things they have learned, and of course, how to be sensible about your dollars. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Dollars and Sensibilities. This is another Friday. I'm here with my fantastic co-host, Mr. Bill McBride. Bill, you are looking very royal today. You look like royalty, but as per usual. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I suited up for this episode. Put on the uh, put on the nice tie. And <laughs> you can't see the uh, the wingtips, but they're there. <laughs> The wingtips are there too. Fantastic. This is uh, the Royal Edition. So today we're going to be talking about the recent passing of Queen Elizabeth. May she rest in peace. So born in April of 1926. I think this is fascinating talking about her life. Pre-Depression era baby. I don't think the normal rules of demographics and depression depression money psychology applies to her. She was coronated in 1952 and led the royal family for 70 years, passing this September 2022 on, on September 8th. So what I thought we would do today is in true dollars and sensibilities fashion, uh, is take a look at not only her life, her legacy, but also her estate. We don't want to marginalize and just make numbers of, of the person, her impact and what she's done. It's fantastic. But this is a financial podcast, so let's, let's focus on on some of the numbers. Uh, but before we do that... Yeah, I, I, I wanted to uh, to add here to, to her, her resume, right? She was queen of 32 sovereign states during her lifetime and 15 at the time of her death. I really, you know, every time we hear something about her that's other than, hey, you know, she, she passed away on September 8th and, and this is the, the value of the state, you know, I, the, the details fascinate me, Andrew, and, and they always have. And when it comes to someone like, like her, the longest reign of any British monarch and the longest recorded of any female head of state in history, uh, you know, I wonder yeah. what happened to the other 17 sovereign states in between let's face it, in between what, World War II and and now, right? It's a long, long time. The, present time. the world has changed dramatically. She saw the birth of radio, television, and, uh, you know, not, not quite electricity, but y- you get the point. She's been around a while. So yeah. uh, when we dig into the numbers too, you know, those numbers have practical applications to our daily lives when you, when you trickle down to who lived in what states uh, under her reign and, you know, and what kind of impact she had, you know, certainly um, one of the most dramatic and largest impacts in, in history. That's right. Yeah. Well, let's dissect the, the Royal family's wealth here. Uh, now, as you can imagine, the accuracy of the value of some of the Royal holdings can be difficult. Uh, this is not publicly disclosed information, and much of their holdings are in privately held businesses and real estate. So, m- much of what we're looking at is 
the closest estimate of fair market value per sources like Forbes or the New York Times and, and things of, of that nature. Uh, last year, Forbes had a headline value of the total royal family's holdings at $28 billion, which would theoretically make the Windsors one of the two richest families in Britain. So there are very notable holdings inside of that portfolio, things like Buckingham Palace, um, the crown jewels, which, man, could you imagine some of those softball size crown jewels just floating around the, the, the jewelry Andrew, closet? That was the first international trip I ever took when I was, uh, I was 14 and I saw the crown jewels. It was the first thing I went to in the first place in London that I, you know, that I, I landed in. And, you know, as a 14 year old, I was, I was blown away. Like I was not a fan of jewelry or crowns or, or even the English monarchy, right? <laughs> but you just go there. I mean, the purple velvet alone is is worth the trip. But it, just the wealth incorporated into that. You know, we we put numbers on these things. It's it's all priceless, right? Like this is this is this is that's right. Um, for purposes of discussion, it's kind of fodder when you get down to the the emotional nature of an estate and, and the passing of uh, of a legend like this. But you know, I also wanted to to throw in there too. Twenty eight billion Forbes put it last year. Uh, I heard thirty three billion this year. So either there was a twenty percent increase, which is possible, uh, or you know, just the timing of it. Uh, and as you said, it, it can be difficult to to ascertain what kind of what kind of value real estate has at any any given moment. That's right, and I mean that makes sense too, right? Like, look at what's going on in in the world and the global economy in the last twelve to eighteen months, uh, particularly as it relates to real estate values here and and overseas. You're seeing very similar patterns in developed nations across the world. So, is it conceivable to see that their total estate is increased by? 20, 25%. Yeah, I could, I can chat with that. For today's episode as well, Andrew, the conversion rate from pounds to dollars. When I was looking at the outline, I got caught up in this for a little bit. The, the, yeah. the conversion rate 0.87 pounds to dollars, right? So when we go, hey, you know what? It was 28 billion her estate last year. And then it's 33 this year. Well, maybe last year was in pounds and this year's in dollars. And it's the same thing, right? Like, you know. That twenty eight billion is a is a dollars, but yeah. we yeah we can reference some of this in in British pounds to keep it uh, denominated equivalently. Yeah. What I found interesting in in digging into the estate is the royal family empire is essentially broken down into different segments and parts that are allocated per the the monarchs that are ruled over, right? And I loved how they use all of this like medieval language to describe different parts of the estate. So the the largest part of the entire royal estate is gonna be the crown estate, which at the time of death was estimated to be somewhere around 16 and a half billion British pounds. So in today's dollar terms, you know, that conversion roughly 19, 20 billion dollars. So that's, primarily comprised of real estate. So you have, you know, commercial real estate, retail and some of London's most prestigious areas, the West End. They've got farmland uh, that spans all over the countryside. Now here was, the, the, and I know you saw this part, I didn't know this was 
incredible. So what the British family has done is they've taken this asset, roughly 16 and a half billion British pounds that generate just over 320 million pounds in operating income. So not, not gross, but real operating revenue. And they've essentially given that to the government. Now, not the assets, but the revenue stream. And in return for this, what they receive is something called a sovereign grant that is equivalent to about 25% of the revenues generated. So last year, that was just under 90 million British pounds. Now, this covers all of the royal expenses. And if you think of this kind of as a business, right, they've got to pay for all those guards and, and the hats and the suits and the gates and all the operations. They got a fleet of of Range Rovers, so those things ain't cheap. Uh, they're probably armored out. So to armor out a, a Range Rover is probably you know a nice pretty penny. So in this exchange, it, it allows them to not only sidestep taxes paid on the monies they're receiving from the estate, but I found in, in other articles referencing that they also are relieved of personal income tax duties as well because of this this gift that was made through the the crown estate. It's an interesting setup Andrew because it's it's a sovereign grant from the taxpayers, right? The taxpayers did not vote on this, right? This has been in place for presumably hundreds if not thousands of years. And they're mm -hmm. again presumably like like in America, a lot of the heads of state, a lot of their a lot of their things are paid for by the government anyway. Now the Crown Estate is not is not the British government, right? That's so, right. So what they're saying is that this, you know, centuries old um, estate owns this property. It's not in the name of Elizabeth, right? We'll get to what mm -hmm. she owns personally and how that's going to pass, but it's just simply a, an entity that owns. It's not a government entity. It's not a personal entity. It's a non-natural beneficial owner, right? And then. And That's then right. the profits from this estate are gifted to the government, kind of for no reason at all, if you, if you look at it, right? I mean, they didn't have to do that. But I, I guess in exchange, the deal is that, hey, 75% of the operating profit goes to the, back to the taxpayers that allow them to not pay income tax on 100% of that, which, you know, if you shake the numbers out... I, it's kind of a fair deal, right? And and like you said about the Range Rovers too, and they've got a staff of you know who knows, right? Hundreds of people, right? Hundreds. It's got to be. It's got to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the for reference, the estate is six hundred and eighty-five years old, established in thirteen thirty-seven by Edward the Third. Hmm. Six hundred eighty-five year old estate. Now. I don't. I don't assume that this this negotiation of surrendering revenue and tax royalties, you know, from from taxpayers in the form of sovereign grant, was set up nearly 700 years ago. But you're talking about a long established lineage of assets. It just for a second, think about the compounding interest yeah. <laughs> over 685 well, years. If you, if, it's if incredible. You a, if you had a hundred bucks in 1337, I think you were probably a monarch, right? <laughs> yeah. That's so right. Let's get into uh, the, the second part of this, right? So the crown estate owns the bulk of what's going to be transferred in, in terms of wealth here. Uh, the, yeah, it's nearly what sixty percent or so. Yeah, yeah, a little, little, little over, 50. little over half. Um, 
but you mm-hmm. know, with the perks, right, with the tax perks, etc., it's hard to take a look at it in in those finite terms, right? The the second part, mm-hmm. the and I might not pronounce this correctly, the duchy, 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 okay. the duchy. Yep, I don't understand what that means, but the duchy of Cornwall. So the, a duchy is another term for a dukedom or a fife, which is a medieval term for the assets owned by a, yes, I yeah, did Google I that because I had no idea. I learned this. <laughs> Say it again. That was awesome. <laughs> so yeah, the, 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 another name for a dukedom or a fife. So you're going back to sixth grade social well, studies fiefdom, right now. Fifes uh, are not dukes, right? No, a dukedom or a fife is all related to a medieval plot of right. land owned by royal fam, like by a royal family. Okay. So that's where the term okay. comes from. Okay. So the we can just say the the portfolio. So we're gonna pass on the duchy. <laughs> all right. The duchy of Cornwall is a, a billion dollar, a billion. Pardon me, a billion pounds uh, array of property that belongs outright to the monarch's heir. Now, so Charles gets it. William gets it after him. Uh, and it stretches from coastal southwestern England to London's Oval Cricket Ground. $24.6 million in operating profit last year, up 16% from the prior year. Did a little math on this, Andrew. That's, it's, a, it's a 2.46 rate of return. Not bad. It's not beating inflation. Um, but let's add it up, right? Now we're up to what? If we've got 86.3 pounds... Uh, for the Crown Estate, plus 24 for the Duchy of Cornwall. It's 100 and 111 so far. That uh, 100, 111 in operating profit. So here's what's really neat. So in uh, digging a little bit deeper, it, you know, Queen Elizabeth really outsourced the operations of the business, the royal empire, to professionals and asset managers. And you know, if we're using you know U.S. and financial financial market terms. Prince Charles, prior to becoming the king, was noted as being very active in his own holdings and really was the the executor of the the Duchy of Cornwall for, for decades. And it says over the last decade, because of the decisions he made, specifically the the London Oval, the, the cricket ground there, which is appreciated massively in, in value, he's increased that that those holdings by about fifty percent in ten years, which is a phenomenal feat. Well, this was the 10 years to do it, right? Worldwide in terms of real estate. And, uh, you know, he he, was smart. He had the right idea, right? So lastly, uh, the Duchy of Lancaster is an 818 million million pounds holding spread out over Britain that belongs to the monarch. Reported 23.3 million in operating profit last year, up 4% year over year. That's a 2.8% return return on equity. So when we add these all up, what do we have, folks? $134 million a year, 134 million pounds per year in operating profit. So, you know, compound interest and all that, like no wonder, not only did he probably make some great real estate deals, but uh, I'm sure the rents from those real estate deals went back in compounded uh and now you know i don't know i don't know what kind of what kind of family can spend 134 million in a year but you know they they've got it and they've got it coming in yeah i mean it's interesting because in modern day 
right? The, the Royal family has no real like political positioning in, in Britain, though their, their importance and prominence in state influence certainly cannot be denied. And I mean, it almost seems if we're going to kind of make an analogy here to the U.S., it is like a privately run corporation that is terribly successful and has a, you know, a tremendous amount of influence. It, it employs a lot of people. So I just think about it like I was comparing it to U.S. real estate companies. I was comparing it to U.S. real estate companies because the vast majority of their wealth and holdings is in real estate. And it's where the majority of the income comes from. It's where the majority of the value is. And it even notes that, yeah, as you said, over the last 10 years, it, they've done so well. It was, the, it was a good 10 years to do that, right? We've seen a lot of economic growth since the global financial recession back in 2008 and 2009, which Europe was not excluded from. They, they participated in that downturn and the subsequent you know, expansion that has come since. So in the U.S., they would be something like the seventh or eighth. They'd be the top, you know, one of the top 10 largest real estate holding companies if we're just measuring it by assumed asset value. And I mean, that's that's pretty significant, right? You're up there with like the the Tishes and the Marriott's of, of the world. This has real influence and control over what's what's going on and though they use all of these like super cool terms like duchy and (laughs) crown estate i mean it's just a portfolio right and it's run like a privately held business and it's how active the leadership of that whether it's queen elizabeth now king charles one of the princes william um or uh what's his name harry is all going to be dependent on who actually heads this up. So what I find interesting now is, well, if if Charles has been active for the last 10 years and has done a really good job in increasing value, now he's really in charge of a much larger portion of the royal empire. What could his influence do on the presumed value of the crown estate over the next 10, 20, 30 years? I mean, he's still relatively... Uh, young 73 I think but but it that really it brings up more questions and answers for me Andrew because what was his that's that's what yeah, I'm here to do just just bring up more questions it, it, it's fascinating right what what was his role in the assets of the crown estate and, and how does that work so you know, if 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 your name's Charles and you're an American and your mother Elizabeth is 95 years old Chances are you might be managing her real estate assets, but when we say her real estate assets are the the assets of the crown estate, I'm assuming they have scores of people and teams that are you know assisting in this. But you know ultimately the queen has the final say in the crown estate you know, and, and things like that. But as it's pe- yeah, this is probably not your your typical mother son <laughs> yeah. relationship as it relates yeah. to. You know, this isn't your millionaire next door who's like, hey, I'm, I'm helping mom manage her five or six different multifamily properties that are worth 10 or $20 million. You're talking about a multi-billion dollar empire and enterprise that, like you said, has teams of analysts and researchers and real estate experts and brokers and accountants and bookkeepers and all, you know, all the right. rest. And, and not to get off on a tangent, but I think 
I, I'd like to see this addressed, and maybe maybe a future episode we'll do a little bit more research on this. Is there is there now between the Crown Estate and the Duchies? Let's separate the two, right? Crown Estate. Okay. Okay. That's since thirteen thirty seven, right? The Duchies doesn't matter whether they were uh, started last week or a hundred years ago. They're personally owned. So. Well, thirteen fifty one and thirteen fifty six, respectively, for Lancaster and okay. Cornwall, the two largest. Okay. So, give or take ten or twelve years post the establishment of the royal family. So, but those those are personally owned, meaning that if Queen Elizabeth says, "Hey, I want the Duchy of Cornwall and Lancaster to go to Charles." or generation skipping as we do in, in those uh, revocable living trusts and things like that. Generation skipping, maybe he wants uh, William to get it directly. I'm assuming there's no estate taxes on the, on the queen's uh, passing of, of these assets. But what is allowable in the crown estate? Is it still, uh, I'll say it, is it still the antiquated eldest son gets it unless he abdicates and other fun English words or, or is there, is there something in place or that could be in place where Charles passes it equally to William and Harry? I, I just wonder how that all works. Well, we, we spent the last 15 minutes pontificating over the, the Royal assets, but this is the crux of why I wanted to do this episode because to me, we, we did an episode, and I don't remember what number it was, but it was all of the estate planning failures that celebrities mm-hmm. make. And we had all these examples uh, from Whitney Houston to Michael Jackson of just complete and total failure to plan properly, which created chaos and disaster for, for the estates. The royal family, in my opinion, is the pinnacle and the North Star of what to do in estate planning. Barron's had an article over the weekend about what the estate planning of Queen Elizabeth and what her death can teach all of us about what to do with our own. Now, we don't have, you know, multi, you know, $100 billion real estate empires or $10 billion, $20 billion real estate empires. But what, what you can note is that for Queen Elizabeth herself, she has been doing proper estate planning, it noted, for decades. So for decades have been has been thoughtful about who's going to take what position, you know, which family member is going to take over which uh, sovereign state, whether it was the Lancaster, Cornwall, or any of the other ones that are within in the royal family. And even over and above that, there is this mandate within the royal language that dictates how these things should be governed and ruled over within and of themselves, which has been adopted and revised over nearly 700 years. But there is this foundational document that's been navigating the choices, which much of it is based on tradition, right? Within the culture of Britain, within the culture of the royal family. But I think about that, well, what can I take away from that? I don't have $20 billion, but I do have assets that I plan on leaving to the next generation and the generation beyond that. And what I've noticed is there are a couple of really important things that I can take away from Queen Elizabeth's death and I can learn from it in order to, when, when that day eventually comes for me, I can have just as a successful estate execution as we're now seeing play out in the royal family. Well, let's address that, Andrew, because 
what we're talking about in the monarchy is effectively a patriarchy, right? Where it is like like happened in medieval times. The eldest son gets the throne, picks a wife. She's the queen. His eldest son gets the throne, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's why, well, I don't think, I, I know that's why, from an estate planning perspective and a um, an heir perspective to the throne, Harry and Meghan and uh, all the kind of media hullabaloo that's been going on there, that's that's been important to a lot of people to understand. The crown as an entity knows what's going to happen, right? They've been, they've been mm-hmm. estate planning for Queen Elizabeth probably since the day she was born and Charles, no exception, right? Harry and William, yes. uh, you know, Harry shaking it up a little bit because let's face it, right? There is a, there is a possibility that something happens to William and then, you know, what happens then, right? They know, we don't know, but, but they know they have every scenario played out. And I think that's a nice segue into what we're getting into with the trust planning, planning your estate. What happens if the unthinkable happens? So I think the first thing is, and it notes it here, is that not enough people take estate planning serious enough early enough, right? As soon as there is table stakes, as soon as you have something to lose, as soon as you have others who are responsible, right, for you or dependent on you, excuse me, looking at formulating an estate plan, thinking through your assets, your business, your accounts, your real estate holdings is so important. And to first just put your thoughts and ideas and your wishes pen to paper, put, write this down, create your basic documents, create a basic will. That's step one, create powers of attorney and healthcare directives. These are basic documents that no matter the size, shape, creed of your, uh, of your state, you need to have this, these things in order. Chances Um, are though, you might not need them, right? in, In fact, the probability is that you won't. But probabilities and statistics, as we know through lies, damn lies and statistics, right? They they can be they can be tricky, right? You don't want to be that even if it's only one percent of people that actually need a healthcare power of attorney at some point, and I, I would I, I would think that that number is much larger. Um, you want to have it in place. A lot of these things, a lot right. of these things, really, Andrew, can be done online. You know, LegalZoom and TrustedWill.com oh, yeah. and all these different websites that, that can do it for you. Um, and they can be done relatively cheaply and it's set it and forget it. Now, the trust, the trust mm-hmm. itself, as we'll get into, the trust you want to update every few years. But the important thing is sitting down and getting getting it done. Well, I, I'll argue that a little bit. And I think you'll agree with me is that even if you don't have a trust and you just have a basic will and some and basic estate planning documents, even to the extent you can bypass wills with beneficiaries named directly on bank accounts or retirement accounts or things of that nature, it, reviewing those documents regularly, because sometimes your preferences and your wishes and your thoughts of the future can change, right? Circumstances can change. New people can come into your life or other people can exit your life for one reason or another. And that may demand a change to the documents that were just five or 10 or maybe 15 years old. So reviewing those those regularly 
updating them. Uh, and I just, I say that because I, I want to caution against the set it and forget it mentality because I think estate planning should regularly be thought about on, and I'll just, I'll throw out a number every three to five years, right? Every three to five years, make sure you're, you're reviewing your estate plan. Now, if your estate plan is more complex and it does have trusts or multiple trust that may demand that the process of estate planning is done more regularly or you're reviewing different parts of your plan every three to five years which then causes you to review you know estate planning as a topic nearly every year or every other year right because one year i'm reviewing my my medical components i'm reviewing my financial assets i'm reviewing my trust i'm reviewing my beneficiaries so making sure you're reviewing these things to make sure they still address and all work together yeah absolutely i mean you you of course want to review anything financial uh and the titling whenever there's a a life change or b when it's some time has passed, right? People forget too. Mm -hmm. Financial power of attorneys, uh, as well as healthcare power of attorneys, they're a little. Well, it depends on who your power of attorney is, right? If you if you name right. somebody as your financial power of attorney or your healthcare power of attorney today, five years from now, as long as that person's still in your life and you're still copacetic, there's there's nothing really to do there except say, hey, just just a reminder, you're this person, but. I, I think the financial power of attorney and the healthcare power of attorney, Andrew, I'm starting to see more and more in the general public that they're, they're becoming more and more necessary. And, you know, I don't know whether mm -hmm. it's more early Alzheimer's or dementia that, that we're seeing out there, um, but they're real problems. And that, it can spark the conversation between parent and child. But here's what I'm seeing right. more of, and especially with the great resignation of COVID, there's simply a lot of older Americans that are relaxing in their retirement and neglecting their financial matters. So it's easy to say, mm. hey, you know what? I turned 65. Uh, I've worked really hard and uh, you know, I got my gold watch. I cashed out my 401k and I did everything right. I set up the trust. I, I, I put a financial power of attorney on there uh, and a healthcare directive and all that. But you don't have to be in a declining cognitive state to fall victim to fraud. And we're seeing that more and more every year, okay? And the criminals are only getting better while the older folks are becoming more susceptible, right? Because technology, as it expands, is making people more susceptible to the fraud schemes out there that can, that can you know, right. ruin your finances very rather quickly. Yeah. Which I think is a nice segue to the where I want to land on today. Probably the biggest lesson and takeaway that I see from an estate planning case being played out in real time with the royal family. And that's simply for you and I and everyone listening to communicate your wishes with those who it'll impact. Share the details of your estate plan with your spouse, with your children, with your family, with your, uh, with the, you know, if you have charities and organizations that you wish to leave money to, communicate those intentions because 
let's take the royal family as an example. You and I are sitting here in the U.S. and we understand the details of the royal family and their plans and who's going to take over what and who's going to manage which portions of, of the estate because it has been so clearly defined. Now, because of the complexity, do we know all the details? No. But my point is that you know, there's real clarity that's that's obviously been communicated at a very high level. And one of the issues I see with so many families is that there is estate planning done, but there is no concentration and organization of all of the, the different plans and wishes. And all of the people who are impacted, whether it's children's, brothers and sisters, spouses, a lot of times that information is not relayed. So at the death of that that person, things start to become a little gray and fuzzy and we, we lost this document or where do we keep that or they're not all in one place. I, I'm biased, but this is why I would stress the importance of having a, a financial team, financial planner, a you know an estate attorney, a CPA, your team understanding what your wishes are can help your your family. But I think that's that's probably the biggest key and one of the biggest failures I see in estate planning is that you know personally I've dealt with a lot of kids and a lot of spouses who just don't know and it takes years to settle an estate because 6 months 8 months later they're they're finding some new statement they're finding a life insurance policy they're finding out about some track of land that was owned in Kansas or something like that that just the family just didn't know so, about Andrew that's a that's a great point and one that we, we we've talked about the trusts and estates and naming beneficiaries as the trust and when to do a will, when to do a trust. We've talked about that in in previous episodes. I want to talk now about exactly what you were you were touching on. I think nine out of ten trust owners don't communicate what is in their trust to the beneficiaries of that trust or even the successor trustees. Now think about that. You say to yourself, hey, I've got this estate with you know, this real estate here and this brokerage account and these bank accounts. I'm going to go to a lawyer. I'm going to put in the trust. I'm going to talk to this lawyer about who I want to get my money when. I'm going to talk to them about, hey, what happens when I pass away? Who's going to be the trustee that's going to administer this trust? And then you're going to put it in a drawer, right? No. I'm sorry, right? Like that's, you're, you're, you're just right at the finish line, but you decided to, you know, hang out in a, in a lawn chair right before you crossed the line, right? Like it's get it done, but it's not enough to just get it done. You want to communicate with whether that's your children or, you know, friends or whomever it is, communicate not just, hey, this is where my trust is located when I die. This is how you find the key to the black box and, and you, you get my trust and then you'll know. No, do it now while you're alive. Now, there's a few reasons, right. though, why people might not do that, right? Number one, nobody wants to be the bad guy. Maybe you have something in your trust and you know child A is going to get 52% and child B is getting 48 and you kind of don't want to address that in person understandable. Number two, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's the surprise, right? Maybe child A is, is getting 90% and they're the successor trustee and, and, you know, they just didn't know how much they're going to get. Um, but, and there's also the, you know, number three, I think is, is kind of the prodigal son thing, right? Like where you have somebody that you want to, uh, be a benefactor of your trust 
and none of the other family knows about that person. You know, who, who knows? Could be a, you know, a long lost cousin or a mistress or whatever it is. But there, those are reasons, right, why, why people, I think, shy away from. But by and large, most trusts are pretty, pretty clear cut in terms of how it's going to be passed along. But just as you didn't know before you walked in the lawyer's office how your trust was going to be articulated, well, you can't expect your beneficiaries or the successor trustees to know your wishes just by reading that 20-page trust document, right? That's why you have a lawyer do it. Um, so the solution here, I, I, I think, is simple. If, if there's nothing in your trust that you want to keep ultimately secret until you're passing, it would behoove you to take your beneficiaries and your successor trustees into one of those financial planning meetings or even the creation of the trust meeting. One or both, or mm -hmm. simply put... I want to touch on one, one thing real quick about the, the secrecy idea. I, I think it is the fallacy of a lot of first-generation wealth builders that protecting the, the next generation from knowing the exact details of the wealth to be inherited somehow will instill the, this sense of, I still need to work for it. So, right. Think about the first generation wealth builder. They don't have an example of somebody communicating to them about money management or estate planning, or, you know, their, their money script is, is just different. If we're, you know, use some, some behavioral finance terms. So now, as they move on to the, the next generation and they've built this wealth and enough wealth to be able to pass on to, to the next, they think, well, what made me successful was I needed to work for it. So I don't want to, I don't want the next generation to know that there's actually a $10 million trust. Maybe they know that there's some money, but I'll let them think that it's a couple hundred thousand or a million. I won't let them know the full extent of it because I, I don't want them to be dependent and reliant on it. And I just think that that's probably an inaccurate or a false way. It's an ineffective way to help teach and guide the next generation to be able to have the character and the behavior and the mindset to be able to inherit any sort of of wealth, whether it's real estate, brokerage accounts, or, or things of that nature. I love this hypothetical, and I love talking about it with you, especially because, it, in a sense, Andrew, I, I think we're we're cut from the same cloth on the on the East Coast, and and I've heard this as I know you have as a financial advisor. What do you do, right? What What do you do? Because the catch twenty two here is if you've got a ten million dollar estate and you've got one child and you want that child to work hard like you did, well, do you give that $10 million estate to charity? And if that child expects, let's say the child expects you know, a million dollars when you pass away, right? Do you give that 10, 10 million away to charity to ensure that the, the child works hard like you did? Or do you leave it to the child in the trust and have it be a surprise, in which case then that, that work ethic is kind of kind of out the window, right? Uh, or do you, well, that, or do you provide like stipulations upon the passing that within the trust it says, hey, they have to maintain a 40-hour-a-week job 
earning X amount of money and then they can access, you know, and even that though, I've seen go wrong. Like I've seen people blow through millions in just a, uh, a matter of years because it was, you know, the parents thought they set it up like, Hey, they're going to get, you know, a quarter million at age 30 and another quarter million at age 35. And the kid ends up just hanging out, you know, with a quarter million dollars every five years. Correct. And, and I, I, I would opt for option D. I, I don't think, cause the, Giving to charity is is fine if you're naturally charitably inclined. The, if, if the motivation to give to charity is because I don't want to ruin the next generation, I think your your motives for for gifting are are probably just misguided. The surprise scenario leaves you in the the lottery winner situation, right? And your probability that that money will be gone increases dramatically because it becomes this windfall event of new wealth and new money, new tax status, new opportunity. And we know that story. We've covered that before. The gifting over time in some sort of, you know, segmented way, I think has the same effect with just less money, but more frequency of the event. Mm. So my, my recommendation would be that better financial literacy and education, communication, and in-depth retraining of the money script needs to be done from an earlier age when your plan is to build and, and, and give wealth generationally. Well said. Let's end it there. It's another Friday edition. This was the Royal episode. Thanks so much for listening to Dollars and Sensibilities. If you found this valuable, please leave us a comment, like, subscribe, share it with a friend, and join us back here every single Friday. I'm Andrew. And Bill. Cheerio. Cheerio, mate. Thank you for listening to the Dollars and Sensibility podcast. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can join us for each and every episode. Follow us on social media at WIS Advisors and be sure to check out our website at wisadvisors.com. Tune in for the next step on the bridge between dollars and the mind of the sensible investor. Thanks for listening. Bill McBride and Andrew Mars are investment advisor representatives and registered representatives with Western International Securities Incorporated. All the opinions expressed by Andrew, Bill and all podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Western International Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Western International Securities may maintain positions discussed in this podcast.